Shush Box Podcast, a safe space for self-expression, healing, and empowerment. Brought to you by Chani Ra, writer and artist. Self-love and embodiment coach, Jacqueline Michelle. And Sunita, founder of Shushbox, the wellness platform supporting survivors of sexual trauma. Hi everybody, we're back for another episode of the Shushbox podcast. Today's episode is hosted by me, Sunita, and we'll be joined by Kenyora Parham from End Rape on Campus. End Rape on Campus works to end campus sexual violence through direct support for survivors and their communities, prevention through education, and policy reform at the campus, local, state and federal levels. So welcome, Kenyora. Hi, Sunita. Thank you so much for welcoming me into your podcast. I'm happy to be here. I thought we could maybe just kick things off by finding out a little bit more of how you actually got involved with End Rape on Campus. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my path to becoming a part of End Rape on Campus isn't the typical traditional kind of story. My my background really stems from being raised in a very maternal household from three generations, my great-grandmother, grandmother, my aunt and my, my mom. And really what they had instilled in me was like this power of womanhood, resiliency and, and community and family, um, especially for me being raised as the only child. And so, you know, I was raised by my mom who was a very young teenager at the time when she had me um, herself. And her main goal was to make sure that I didn't fall into that kind of um, cyclical, uh, stereotypical teenage mom um, type of, you know, phase that a lot of Black people within the Black community are looked at as in terms of the that statistic um, within the Black community. And so, she, if anything, really enrolled me in schools that she felt were good. She was an active parent in my education um, and really gave me the opportunity to choose where I wanted to go. And so figuring those things out for me was kind of like, a, oh, I, I want to be here because I want to go where women are and, you know, recognize that women are doing such great things and um, attributing to society in such a great way. Um, so I ended up going to a women's centered college called Simmons University. Um, and even prior to then, I was a girl participant in what's called Girls Incorporated, which essentially takes inner city girls from different communities and really exposing them to different walks of life and different things around their communities than they probably never have seen before and really giving them opportunity to recognize that they're strong, bold, and smart. And so after being a part of that, that organization, went to Simmons, became a member of a sorority, Delta Sigma Data Sorority Incorporated, and so really have been surrounded by a lot of women-centered spaces. Um, Even when I transitioned from Simmons and went on to get my master's in social work at Boston University, I, as a full-time student, also um, started my career 
and another women-centered organization called Strong Women, Strong Girls. Um, and that was a multi-generational program um, based on mentoring. So college women mentoring elementary school girls and the college women being mentored by professional women. And so I just always knew that I wanted to have some sort of impact, um, positive impact on women and girls themselves, whatever that looked like, but just wasn't sure what that what that was. Um, and so over the years, you know, in my career, I've always also found myself in spaces that have been in predominantly white spaces and where I've had to navigate through those pressures of being the only sole black woman staff member. So I found myself always having to advocate for myself, especially when it comes to being understood. So over the years, I've grown into what that looks like unapologetically for me, but also recognizing that. I've gone through my own trauma as a survivor myself, and my survivorship actually starts when I was a young child and also on the campus space. And so I've, I think because of what my, my, my mother and my aunt and my grandmother had instilled in me, I was able to compartmentalize that for myself and recognizing that despite what I had to endure or what I had to observe or witness at a young age, I was able to figure out there has to be something there that I can create change to for. Um, so I think a combination of my own survivorship story, in, and I would even include organizational trauma that I've endured over my career, kind of propelled me into where I'm at now as the executive director of NREAP on campus. And actually didn't start as the ED. I started off as the chief of staff. And what that looked like was really me creating in a work environment that I never really had on in making sure that our former staff members were able to really propel in their own positions, um, especially towards, you know, this much greater cause that we're a part of um, as exhausting and, um, you know, secondary trauma can, (laughs) can play a role in as well. And so I find myself being on this path towards like, women and girls and women at the the intersections of their identities and kind of this like empowerment pipeline. And so despite myself being a a survivor, you know, I didn't have that kind of traditional, oh, this is what happened to me and went through my Title IX office um, and went through those kind of procedures. That wasn't something that was talked about in my community. Um, I mean, my mom, I think, did a good job of trying to have those conversations and making sure that she I didn't go through what she did, um, but I still didn't feel like I had enough of those types of resources to really guide me about like, oh, this is actually what happened to you. This is how you recognize these signs and, you know, really have, you know, even that community space. I think I really just kind of took myself out of that space and just focused on the positive of like, here's, okay, this is what happened. We went through the trauma, but this is how we're going to get over that. Um, But now being in this space, it's a bit like helping other people in their own healing journey with resources that I didn't have to say, because I didn't have these, I like, let me give all of what I know (laughs) to you. um, So you don't have to deal with what I have dealt with. So it wasn't a necessarily a linear path, but a very much a, uh, a a path that I think was just based off of you know resiliency and and 
a multi-generational kind of survivorship. <laughs> oh, wow, what a journey. What, um, I love how you were explaining that. And thank you so much for sharing with us, obviously, your experiences and the empowerment pipeline. I feel like that is, you know, we talk so often about empowering women and feeling empowered, but you're so right. It's a pipeline. You know, you don't just wake up one day and feel empowered. It's a process. And I think it's super powerful you using your experiences to, you know, provide the things that weren't there when when you were, were going through what you went through. So I think it's super inspiring and thank you so much for sharing your story I think it's helping a lot of people like you say and the more conversations we can have around these things and you know in various communities it is still an uncomfortable conversation and that is the whole reason we're having this conversation now you know we're probably both working in this space because we might have experienced that feeling of um, not being able to speak your truth exactly you know so speaking the truth so yeah I really appreciate you sharing that that with me um really interesting to hear and yeah you're doing amazing work so thank you (laughs) so with that experience um going on to the work that you're doing at can I abbreviate it by the way is it EROC does anyone say that EROC no EROC Iraq. Okay, so <laughs> I'm gonna call it Iraq. Iraq. That's quite cool, actually. <laughs> like, um, okay, so with uh, your experiences and obviously how you got into Iraq, what would you say is the mission of Iraq? Yeah, so you actually said it at the top of the call um, about us really, you know, ending sexual assaults by providing direct support for student survivors and in their communities prevention through education, policy reform on the local, state, uh, federal levels. But our our vision entirely is that we envision a world in which each individual has an educational experience that is free from violence, and until then that all survivors are believed, trusted, and supported. And we do this through a new framework. So back in 2017, we actually started what was called Centering the Margins. Centering the Margins really focused on amplifying the voices of those students who were at the intersections of their identities. So those who were historically underserved, historically excluded, and systemically marginalized uh, from this this campus anti-rape space. Um, And so what I have done is essentially taken that initiative and moved it towards as a framework for how we do the work. So it's not a a program in and of itself. It's actually the lens in which we do our programs and our initiatives moving forward. So that means that anything that we do and which I'll I'll talk about in the, in the podcast, it, it will stem through that, that CTM framework lens. Um, And the aim of that is to support, educate, prevent, and ultimately end sexual violence against these marginalized communities. Centering the margins, it's so important. And when we're having these discussions that already in society are so uncomfortable and awkward, that everybody's included, you know, it's so different within different communities. My background, you know, I'm Asian. It's uh, our communities, it's definitely not something that's openly spoken about. So 
understanding the nuances, I think, of these different communities and bringing that all into um, a structure like you're saying is, again, yeah, so important. You know, it's one thing speaking about it, but then understanding, I think, each culture, each community and how things are processed and how things are discussed. Exactly. Exactly. And it's also because of the fact that, you know, with the current COVID-19 pandemic we've endured, we also have scenes like within the political climate, this kind of heightened awareness around uh, systemic oppression. And then, of course, you know, wanting to pay homage to the Me Too movement in Tarana Burke um, and her foundation for that, because I think through her work, she really gave, paved the way to say, hey, there are Black women and women who are at the intersections of their identities that are not being talked about in this movement that we need to, to talk about. And we also need to talk about the intersections that play a role in sexual violence. It's not always about rape or, or sexual harassment or sexual assault or a combination of the above. It's also about police brutality. It's about, you know, voting suppression, suppression rights. So we have to recognize that there is also this intersectional framework and lens um, in order to really get to the root of the matter and truly make that that change that we seek to do, to make on college campuses. So something else I know that you do a lot of work on is the red zone. And this is a big um, topic of conversation and issue that's happening now with campuses. So I thought we could talk a bit more about what the red zone is. Absolutely. So the red zone is essentially a period of time from August to November. We are more than 50% of campus sexual assaults occur between that time period. This is a time when students essentially are returning back to campus and at the end of the first week of classes, um, where we're seeing the highest prevalence rates of campus sexual assaults occurring. And what we've noticed, especially through research, is that freshmen have actually reported to be the highest rates of unwanted sexual misconduct. And that the reason um, that has attributed to this kind of heightened, not kind of, but <laughs> heightened um, uh, occurrence or uptick is due to more socializing that's happening, less work that's happening, more free time and heavier drinking. Because we know that at the beginning of you know the semester, that's where we're seeing a lot of partying happening, a lot of, you know, students engaging in peer pressure um, situations, students come to campus for the first time, especially freshmen. And then, of course, what we know, because we're coming off of the heels of COVID-19 and also entering that Delta variant, some schools are coming back from virtual learning to in-person learning. And so what we fear is that both the freshman class and the untraditional sophomore classes are essentially coming together who have not undergone any college, like that in-person college experience is going to attribute to the uptick and that unwanted sexual assault. And so we believe that during this year, uh, this particular red zone year, it's actually going to double. So we have actually named that double red zone. It's a sad reality that that's the case. You know, you would 
hope it was the opposite. People are coming out into the society and being more aware of how they're behaving. But, you know, like you just explained, a lot of people will be doing the opposite and not thinking about their actions as integrating back into society. You would hope that people are integrating in the right way, but. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's unfortunate that we even have to do these things. <laughs> um, but it's something we have to do, right? Like it's, we're, we're talking about students who are entering into college campuses to receive an education on specific programs or majors that they're a part of, but they're also getting equipped with through, especially through, you know, our organization, as well as our partner organizations that are also doing this work with other educational uh, programming and opportunities to really talk about, you know, what they're not talking about. Um, What does it mean to have healthy relationships? What does it mean to be an active bystander? What does it mean to intervene? What does it mean to support you know, your, your fellow peers, um, who have experienced, you know, a sexual assault or harassment that, are, that occurs on or off campus. Um, what does it mean to really even celebrate those who have endured that experience and are, if anything, navigating through their survivorship journey? And it's not linear. It's not like, you know, this, you know, A to B type of trajectory, it's going to always be all over the place. But what does it look like to celebrate someone who's going through that? Um, And, you know, equip them with not only the resources to navigate through those pathways, but also to inform and empower them to um, pursue, you know, um, uh, long-term impactful modes of advocacy for not only themselves, but also for their peers um, and so we're we're aiming to um, enter into this new red zones um, in partnership, actually, with the Every Voice Coalition to really dive deep into and respond to the double red zones through um, a 15 week reclaiming the double red zone campaign, um, which will be focusing on exactly what I've just mentioned in terms of educating and equipping students with tools and resources um, with regard to self-care, um, you know, sustaining awareness and education around the red zone, as well as what does it look like to advocate, um, on a campus and federal level? Again, I was going to ask you, how could we be more proactive in raising awareness, but obviously the work that you're doing and this 15 week plan that you have in place, um, working with universities and, you know, is this nationwide or where, where are you doing the, um, the 15 week plan? Absolutely. So this is nationwide and it's a digital social media campaign. So we'll be posting up a number of different resources and ways in which folks can get involved through what we're creating as like a true, like college syllabus in a way, um, to really, you know, (laughs) speak to, uh, the students, um, and they get to essentially pull, from the different weeks that we'll have ready for them to, you know, say, oh, well, there's a resource on, um, you know, what it means to navigate through trauma. Um, and that's something that I need right now, you know, versus waiting until the following week. So it'll be a fully fleshed out syllabus that students will have. Um, and pretty much every week we're going to be 
um, either highlighting some of those resources, highlighting what we're doing collectively with the Every Voice Coalition, and also highlighting what we're doing um, as separate entities um, doing this work as well. So we have a number of great things coming down the pipeline too. Definitely a lot of things to look out for. And, you know, even though it is going to be the predicted, like you say, double red zone, on the flip side of it, there's a lot of content and work and preventative um, measures taking place to obviously raise awareness and, you know, educating people on how to access the content. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's for everyone. And, you know, it's it's students-centered, uh, students in mind. But it's really for, you know, educating everyone who may not even be aware of what the red zone is. And, and that's that's one of the main points too. one of our main goals to make sure that we do is to spread that awareness. Because um, the more people you can educate, the more change. Definitely. It's all education, isn't it? Do you think there's more in general, just speaking, do you think there is more that colleges and universities can be doing themselves or... I think it's a good question that you asked, right? Like in terms of our campus administrators, what can campuses be doing for students? And what it starts with is what are, what is not working? What are they not doing for their students and not student just survivors? I mean, students period. How are they not connecting with the holistic uh, uh, sense of self of the student? their identities that they're coming in with, um, maybe even where they're at in terms of their understanding and ways of the world and how can they meet students where they're at and also provide their students with the, the, the necessary resources um, that aren't just like hidden away on, you know, uh, on the opposite side of campus. And the only way you would know about it is because word of mouth, Right. Like orientation matters. And there's a reason why there's a freshman orientation because you want to give your students a sense of like, here's why you're here. We're proud for you to be here. But also, yes, you're going to be here. And let's also talk about what may occur and some of the resources that we have available for you because we want you to know that you're entering into this new world of opportunity new worlds of experiences that you, most of you probably hopefully have never had, (laughs) Um, you know, in terms of the negative experiences, but also like, we're not only just trying to prepare you to be the next generation of leaders outside of these four years that you, you come to this college, but also let's, let's prepare you to be uh, just uh, a consenting adult and someone who respects other, you know, others in their, sense of bodily autonomy like to me sex education doesn't just start and end in high school it should actually start from k through 12 all the way through to higher education and it doesn't have to be like this raw kind of talk in the education on the elementary level you start off you know very developmentally where the students are at so they can understand those things and then as they get older yeah you can have more of those pronounced conversations but i think we need to it, 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 it's just ironic to me that we have educational institutions that are not educating and that's that's the issue there it's like <laughs> yes you have these programs that the students were attracted to and that's great 
but let's also talk about the here and the now and what's going to happen or hopefully doesn't happen because you have these preventative measures in place and these resources that these students can can um, can utilize. And then let's also talk about you know the the partnerships that exist not only within the college spaces, but like the central players that play a role, like the campus safety, uh, public safety or police officers, or the local department that the school is teaming up with, or the resource center that they may have on their campus, or, you know, that may be located off campus, like a rape crisis center, or any, and it just, and, and, and I'm, I'm not even talking about beyond sexual assault, what are some resources that if there's a student who's coming at coming to the school from a very faith-based perspective, let's say they identify as Muslim, why not provide them with, here's like some of the temples that are around the area that you can also go to because they may be looking for that. You know what I mean? So it's not just about centering sexual assault. It needs to, but I do think sexual assault needs to be a part of the conversation and bringing in the intersectional identities that students are coming in with, especially because most of these schools are global <laughs> universities and colleges um, that are getting students from different, not just the United States, but different parts of the world coming to their campus. So I think there has to be this kind of global sense of, of understanding and intersectional uh, lens and one that's not afraid to have that conversation around sex. Like, <laughs> let's talk about it. Sex, 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 sex. Like, just <laughs> let's talk about sex. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're so right. And, you know, sex education doesn't need to just be about reproduction or STIs, you know, or preventative measures. The reason, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that uh, plays a part, I think, in sexual violence and, you know, these issues that we're talking about is the lack of education and the lack of conversation. So, again, zooming out to just look at how in society sex education and sex is discussed, this whole taboo and secretive and, you know, hush hush kind of mentality around it is playing into the issue it's feeding into the problem so it's just about opening the lid from a young age you know like you say it doesn't have to be um it's meeting the students where they're at it's meeting people where they're at at every stage of life and the younger we can have these conversations about consent about you know body body autonomy like you were saying the earlier we can be having these conversations and not just parking the conversations at a certain point it's about mm-hmm. developing the conversations and it should actually thinking about it mm-hmm. you know these types the work that you're doing obviously it's amazing that you're doing this 15 week program but university and campuses they should be offering this they should be highlighting this this should be part of the education system Absolutely. And and I'll just add that, you know, I came across a study this morning that talked about toxic masculinity, particularly when we're talking about the Disney princess culture and how that if you start showing these elements of um, like children who engage with the princess culture at a younger age will have progressively more positive attitudes towards women, if they're able to embrace that princess culture that is subscribed to, uh, you know, not just around like the, the woe is me and damsel in distress pieces, 
but also the other, you know, princesses that are like saving the day and, you know, are seen as heroes. But if you're able to show even, um, you know, young children, regardless of how they identify um, those different types of pieces that are ingrained in the princess culture, they actually said that it might do your child more good in the long run to have less of that toxic masculinity because they've been um, essentially exposed to the the princess culture, which will also help them to express their emotions much better in relationships. Um, and so in having those conversations with your child about like what they are seeing, but not shielding them from that princess culture that, that is there. So it's interesting. And, and I, and I bring that up to say, it's like, you know, there are things that can be done on um, the most educational, like, you know, primary school level that can basically transcend all the way up until adulthood adulthood so there's there's so much that can be done in order for us to truly change the culture around toxic masculinity rape culture um and even racism and other systems of oppression yeah start early it's just really down to education people don't just wake up and see the world this way (laughs) it's a you know it's it's like you're saying it's systemic it's learning it's society it's these um things in place that almost develop develop these issues mm-hmm. they are making the issues really so something I wanted to ask is um about survivors who might have had an experience you know previous years on campus and they're heading back to school do you have any advice or do you do any work around that yeah, so survivors who may be entering back on campus, um, especially after this COVID-19 and being at home or being in even domestic violence situations um, and have the opportunity to come back to campus full time, um, you know, a piece of advice I would say is, you know, finding that person or group of people as um people they can lean on, their community folks, um, finding even a campus administrator or faculty or staff that they can trust um, who will be able to provide them with, you know, or even if it's just being an ear um, uh, and someone that they can lean on, but also someone who's not afraid to, you know, help them and support them and, and get them the resources they need but also even their peer group, finding someone who within their peer group that they can talk to um, and, you know, not be afraid to have conversations about what's going on for them, what may trigger them. Um, You know, not everyone has to come back to campus talking about what their experience has been, but I think if they can find people that they're comfortable with, that they can trust, who understand, you know, what they're walking with, I don't think a survivorship journey has to always be alone. You know, you can have people along the way with you. Like, yes, you're going to navigate through your emotions and how you show up in the world by yourself. But I think if you have other people who are there to support you, you're not going to feel as isolated um, and and alone because you have other people you can speak to. Um, I would also add that making sure that you do take 
the opportunity to engage in the resources on your college campus, um, especially the counseling center or the health center that is there. And if your college campus unfortunately isn't doing the right right by you in terms of the the resources and the and the mental health resources that you need, um, you know we we do actually help students find um, particular mental health and even legal resources um, if they need that. Um, and so we're we're able to figure out you know if you're a student who identifies as transgender. Um, and you happen to be also from a community of color, we'll help you find a local therapist in your area. We'll help you find, you know, the right legal firm if you're looking to figure out how to, how to you know, navigate through this Title IX <laughs> space that we have. Um, and so, you know, NRAPE on campus can certainly serve as that resource for students um, in helping them navigate through just anything, really. And one thing I'll mention too is we are actually launching what we're calling a campus accountability map and tool. This tool will essentially provide students, family members, uh, faculty, pretty much friends, anyone, policymakers with the ability to compare and contrast uh, different sexual assault statistics, prevention efforts, and survivor support resources that exist on colleges and universities in the United States. And so this gives folks an idea of where colleges are at in terms of their reporting um, statistics, as well as what they offer on their campus, how they define certain um, definitions of sexual assault or consent, um, as well as helping students navigate through that Title IX process and what they should know. Um, when they're when they're going through that process, as well as you know, if a student just experienced sexual assault and they want to get a rape kit um, done, what what they should know when they go in for that. Um, so that particular platform is you know a piece that we're looking to serve as a digital solution, not the digital solution, but a, at least a, a resource that puts the power back in the hands of students and survivors in their communities. Um, to help them not only navigate through their experience, but also to help hold their schools accountable. And it's that sense of transparency that is most needed. Because um, we, we know that a lot of students are, you know, trying to navigate through the Title IX space specifically, and, you know, they're not getting the answers that they need um, from the questions that they're asking, or, you know, no one's being as proactive in terms of providing those resources an understanding of how, you know, how to navigate through that process that is human-centered um, and survivor-centered. So we're, we're looking to change that. Absolutely. Well, I think we've covered a, quite a lot of things there. Is there anything else we should be looking out for from EROC in the next 12 months, maybe? Yeah, so even actually just this fall, we're actually going to be... Um, launching a, a new program that is for student survivors specifically. Um, and it's called Student Survivor Caucus. And it's going to pilot with about 25 students from marginalized backgrounds from 25 different colleges and universities where they get to be at the table and build the table um, in terms of understanding how Title IX and other intersectional civil rights laws 
um, intertwine, learning about the history of sexual violence, ways in which that they can mobilize and make change on their respective campuses and maybe their regions um, and come together in terms of creating a national action plan um, that is created by those student survivors themselves um, through the the equipment um, that we'll be able to provide through a very uh, intersectionally centering um, and, and very intentional curriculum that we're creating um, to really help equip these students, survivors with, with what they need. Um, it's almost like a train the trainer kind of piece, but it's a year long kind of <laughs> fellowship, if you will. Um, but through, through this kind of, um, lens of a caucus. So being like a representative of their college and, um, really being a voice, um, you know, for, for their peers. So it's, it's going to be, going to be a fun time. Um, we're still in the development for that. Um, but yeah, we got a, we got that um, coming down the pipeline as well. The Shushbox podcast is brought to you by the team at Shushbox. We are a wellness platform created by survivors for survivors. For more information, head to www.shushbox.com and check us out on Instagram at underscore shushbox.